I saw the thing with Hamlin and my first thought was, what is our justification for anybody playing tackle football under the age of say 14, like maybe even higher like that. When you see children like seven, eight years old in pads playing football, that's the one where we got to stop and ask ourselves what, 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 what that's, that's where I think our insanity comes out. Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson and from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. If the phrase sports talk makes you think of some blowhard yammering about who's going to win the game this weekend or what coach ought to get fired, well, a lot of sports talk is like that. But Monty Jones is most definitely not. Jones has been one of the smartest guys on the sports mic for more than a decade. You might have seen him on various ESPN shows, including High Noon, and he still does an ESPN podcast called The Right Time. But his main project these days is a TV show on HBO called Game Theory. Season two of Game Theory debuts Friday, January 20th. His show features what Bamani does best. It looks at what sports mean to us beyond the games. My talk with Bamani covers a lot of ground. I'll be thinking for a long time about our discussion of the violence in football and how much it plays into our changing culture and the search for masculinity. But there's a whole lot more. Here's our conversation. Monty Jones, I want to first start off with a, I guess, a stylistic thing. I saw the promo for season two of Game Theory, and I noticed one big difference is in season one, you had a very sharp haircut. In season two, you are lacking hair altogether. And I, I, I wonder if that was a style choice or was that something that your head dictated? No, it's, oh, I mean, when I shaved my head for the first time nine years ago, it was definitely me getting ahead of where the world was going. Um, and then when the pandemic came, I was just like, oh, well, let's see what happens if I grow my hair back. I haven't grown hair in seven years. And it looked a little better than I expected. And so I was like, okay, cool. So I wrote that out. But then when we started doing the show, um, hair and makeup became a lot more of a hassle. Like it takes a lot more time. And I was just like, I don't have the time to give to this anymore. And also there was a reason why I cut my hair in the first place. In the front, we don't grow as much as we do everywhere else. And so it was just like, <laughs> nah, let's bring everything back into rhythm and rotation. So a lot of people who listen to this podcast may or may not be sports fans. Right. So could you explain to them and sort of make your pitch as to why they should watch Game Theory? Yeah. So, you know, one thing I realized with doing a show about sports is that there are millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people who enjoy watching sports. It is a much smaller number of people in that sample who want to watch TV with people talking about sports like that's that's the next level of consumption. And so when you look at the numbers, like how many people watch your studio shows on ESPN, it lets you know that there are only but so many people who want to just hear you talk about sports. And so that's not what we're doing. What I'm always trying to do with this show is find sports topics that will allow us to make connections to something that's larger and happening in society. So like if I think about what I imagine to be like the median household that's viewing this show, there is one person I imagine who is really, really into sports. And they are watching television with someone with whom they negotiate what it is that they are going to watch. And that person needs to be able to enjoy the show, 
even if they aren't super duper into sports. It's got to be something about it that grabs them. And then this negotiated couple can settle on this as a compromise that they both enjoy. That's been something that's worked with my podcasts and stuff in the past, for example. And so for this, like with last season, for example, we were talking about the cryptocurrency craze in America and using all the sports endorsers of that to get into talking about that sort of thing. Um, when Deion Sanders was at Jackson State, we did something about the state of HBCUs. Football is kind of a vehicle into talking about those things. We did something about nepotism in the coaching ranks in the NFL, which is obviously relatable to all these other things. And so this season, we're doing the same thing. You know, we have writer, you know, comedy writers who are there to help beef up and supplement the things that I have to say. Um, but we are not going for we're we're trying to do something that is appealing to the hard for, hardcore sports fan but also accessible for the people that aren't as into it and get into bigger, larger issues using sports as the conduit. And are you planned out? Like, is the whole season sort of planned out? Or are you able to sort of react to events? Well, we're, we're, it's built for us to be able to do some reacting. So the topical section of the show that's at the top is always going to be about what's going on right now. But with our larger, our deeper essays, we're pretty planned out. Like, unless something big comes up, probably later in the season because we got people at work on four or five of those things right now. Um, so we try to go through and look at the sports calendar and see if they're pegs, like things that we can latch on to, to affix the show to that will you know be on people's minds. We know we're going to come around. It's not always the easiest thing to do to try to predict what it is that people will want to hear about later. But no, we are our longer, deeper essays. We got those pretty planned out. And then the other stuff, we give ourselves the flexibility to give reaction to what's going on in real time. So I want to jump right into the, the, I guess, the sports story that's sort of lingered over the last two or three weeks, and that's DeMar Hamlin, the safety for the Bills, who it looked pretty clear that he almost died on the field right. in the game against the Bengals a couple of weeks ago. Um, and when something like this happens, which it, you know, happens frequently enough, maybe not quite that severe, but every game there's somebody carted off or somebody who has a career-ending injury or something like that this question kind of comes back into my head. Like, am I contributing to these broken bodies by loving football, which is the sport I love the most? How do you think we should feel about football? I think the first thing is for us to be honest, right? So, you know, to your question, are we contributing to these broken bodies? Yes, we are. Now, when I think about it in a professional capacity, we are contributing to these broken bodies, but I also think that the presence of them requires some me some measure of oversight, right? Like it requires people in our positions to observe it and to talk about it. Now, the question becomes, how do you balance enjoying watching the activity, especially when part of the enjoyment, whether we want to be honest about this or not, comes from the danger, right? It comes from the violence and the brutality. It's part of what makes this compelling to watch. It's what makes the activity compelling is the high level of risk that is involved now what we can say at different points is hey well these guys know what the risks are kind of right like they know that this will probably hurt a lot later but there's no way for you to know just how much it's going to hurt like anybody who's done a phd program people tell you it's going to be really hard but you're like what do you mean it's just school and then you get there and you're like oh this is the hardest thing that i've ever done but there was literally no word that anybody could have told you that got you there and i think that's a similar place um with football players and so I think a lot of us do have that back and forth about whether it is an immoral activity to watch these games. 
Um, and I don't think I have a concrete answer. I have a lot of rationalizations for why it is that somebody like me would continue to watch in all of these things. And then you wind up talking to former players and almost to a man will tell you how much it hurts. And some of them will tell you that maybe they wish they hadn't done it, but none of them say that there shouldn't be football. Like even the ones who probably would not allow their children to play football, none of them advocate for like the eradication of the entire pastime. So I don't think there's ever going to be a very simple answer. I think that what I see in the NFL actually makes me think a bit less about those guys because you can make an argument that there's a significant level of financial compensation, at least at the high ends of the sport, that make it worth it to people to take the risk and everything else. I saw the thing with Hamlin, and my first thought was, what is our justification for anybody playing tackle football under the age of, say, 14? Like maybe even higher like that when you see children like seven, eight years old in pads playing football, that's the one where we got to stop and ask ourselves what what, what, that's that's where I think our insanity comes out. Well, yeah, because you can just go to like a uh, like a peewee football game and you can hear the helmets hitting each other. Yeah. You know, it's not like not NFL level, of course, but it's little brains, too. And I, I also wonder if there's something cultural about this in in that you know this is not true across the board obviously but our lives have become more and more soft in good ways for the rest of us like most of us are not out farming anymore right most of us aren't working in factories anymore and but we still have that sort of need to feel something physical to feel something maybe dangerous in our lives and so like I kind of feel like the softer we get, the more we crave something like football. Football, to me, is about the the beauty of escaping that danger, right? There's nothing more beautiful than somebody breaking through the line for a touchdown because you know what they avoided. Right. And I, I just wonder if, if you've thought about that at all, about sort of how it seems like, you know, obviously the ratings are bigger than ever. It feels like we need football more than ever. Well, I think an interesting variable to go along with everything you talked about is masculinity, right? Concepts of masculinity and traditional masculinity. Because one thing this society really, really likes is men, no matter how dangerous they happen to be, right? No matter what 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 hell has been wrought upon the world because of men. People really like men and they like the idea of groups of men in lockstep. Like I remember my freshman year of college. Um, somehow somebody got the bright idea that our dormitory should have some sort of induction ceremony. Like, yo, we just wound up here due to a lottery. Like, it's not it's like we didn't we didn't pick this because of the values espoused by these walls. Like, it's just we <laughs> happen to live. But they got us all up, and they told us to put on white t-shirts and black jeans or something like that. And we got out, and we we, we marched, and we did chants, and we did everything. And I remember as we're out there, there's about 130 of us, give or take. I'm looking out the windows of all the girls' dorms that were in our part of campus, and they were like transfixed in watching this assembly of men sounding like men, for lack of a better term, being like men, for lack of a better term. And people are into that. Like you think about any collection of something that's men in uniform, right? It could be, you know, the, the military. I mean, athletics, you can be the damn mailman, right? Like people get off on the idea of seeing these groups of men doing manly things. And as we move more to the service-based economy, as you say, 
I do think that there are there are a lot of men who struggle with the idea of purpose. And we're seeing the hell that a lot of them are wreaking upon the world. Football offers all of those things because one thing about football also is that it fits very neatly into narratives of group sacrifice and all of the, all of those sorts of things along with giving you that oh those are manly men out there doing manly men things and for a lot of guys like if you grew up like you you became an accountant and your dad worked in a factory there's a chance that you look at your dad and wonder if he thinks you a man your dad is probably really proud that you didn't have to work with your hands right but there's nothing that reaffirms what is one of the most prized characteristics in the society, at least in the way that people think about, you know, the concept and the idea of masculinity. And so I think that as we do go soft, as you put it, because it's the truth, right? Like the life I lived is completely different than the life that my father lived, even different than the life that my mother lived in that regard. Um, football, I think people do cling to that maybe in another way as a way to prove that they are men, right? Like, and I think whether most men want to admit it or not, they could probably in their lives, if they thought about it hard enough, go back and be like, hey, that's the moment that I thought I was a man. And not just something trite, like the first time you had sex or something like that, but like something where you realize like, yo, this is on you and this is what you do and you got it done. Um, and I imagine for a lot of people, it is harder for them to find those places and find those things. I want to go back to a, a piece you did last season. The, that I'm sure rang a lot of bells down here in North Carolina where I live. And that was your, your piece on Mike Krzyzewski and his <laughs> retirement and the museum that you guys, the exhibit you guys built on how uh, Krzyzewski and his, his mostly white teams, especially in the 90s, destroyed the dreams of so many young black men and their, their teams. First of all, I'm wondering sort of how that idea came up to do that and how you ended up going as far as actually kind of building this exhibit, you know, where you're showing pictures of, you know, Cherokee Parks and Steve Wojciechowski <laughs> and all those people that so many people love to hate back then. That is what I, I kind of learned the magic of television on this, because like I said, we try to plan out the essay topics far in advance. And so I knew that the first episode of the show was going to be on Selection Sunday for the NCAA tournament. And I was trying to think, well, what is something that we could start working on right now that I know will still be relevant at that point? And I was like, oh, the Coach K retirement tour. And so I was like, okay, what's there to do? Because there's so many elements. Like I could have done a whole other one about how Krzyzewski ushered in the era of the CEO coach and how much more boring and like cynical basketball and all sports have become since these coaches decided they stopped wanting to be teachers and wanted to be CEOs. But then I really stopped and thought, and I was just like, Duke has always been so racially polarizing, but I didn't have a great answer for it. Like why they were so much more polarizing than say Indiana, which had a lot of the same characteristics. And then I really stopped and thought about it and was like, oh, because every team that black people ever felt like was theirs, not only did Duke beat them, but Duke was doing it with the announcers cheering them on. And then so <laughs> I got wrapped up in kind of the irony of the idea of how to present this that I, you know, some people weren't going to get because race just scares them. But it was just the idea that the joke of this was not as much on Duke as this joke was on black people. Like the joke was on the idea we hate Duke because we are hating. Like they, they destroy us and we don't like it. And then you add the cherry on top. This is just the way that they get talked about vis-a-vis -vis the other guys. And I was like, this is actually the reason why Duke is a big deal. And nobody's going to talk about this in the course of the Krzyzewski thing. Like they're going to skip over the plot 
on why it is that he is so much more famous and so much more of a big deal. Like he's not that much more accomplished than Roy Williams, but we didn't do all this when Roy Williams retired. And so I came up with that and I talked to James Davis, one of my executive producers. And as I said that, he says, what if we came up with a museum exhibit about how Duke has terrorized black America? And I've never done a TV show like this before. So when he says this, I'm like, huh, is that possible? And then we call our showrunner, Stu Miller, who's worked on The Daily Show and worked with Sasha Baron Cohen and, you know, done all these things. He's like, oh, that's totally doable. So it starts with just somebody saying, what if we, and somebody saying, oh, yeah, we can do that. And so then from there, we send the idea to the writing staff and say, what are some exhibits that you think would be good to put in the museum? They bring the, the things they come up with to me. I circle this, I circle that. So people come up with some other things. We figure that out. And then I remember the first day that we were all in the office for the first season. Uh, we're in the meeting, we're in a boardroom. And it's the first time I've ever been in a meeting where I guess I'm in charge. We're like, I'm the guy. And so next thing I know, we're on a Zoom and somebody has presented the schematics of the room for this museum. And they're telling <laughs> me that, you know, what the distances are going to be this way and what we're going to put on this wall and the camera's going to come this way. And we're going to do all of that. And they're laying it all out. And it's what I'm not realizing is since I'm the talent, everybody in the room wants to see how I feel. But it's 2022 and COVID. I have a mask on. So they're all on pins and needles looking at my face, but they can't see <laughs> that I got this giant smile on because I love it so much, but they can't tell. They can't see. And I just remember the day that I went down to the Schomburg Center um, in Harlem and saw the actual exhibit. I took my brother with me and we just stood there blown away. Like one of our writers who's from North Carolina and helped write the script and put that together. I just watched him stand there with his arms folded. Like, I cannot believe this is what we do for money. So two quick questions about that follow-ups. One, what, what was the feedback on that? Did you hear from Duke Nation basically? I did not hear that much from like Duke fans because over the years they've learned to just leave me alone. Um, <laughs> and I also think that they were kind of confused in the end. Like they could, they, they probably thought that they had something to be mad about, but they couldn't exactly figure out what it was. So they just left it alone. But what I did hear or who I did hear from on the low was a few former black Duke players <sighs> who enjoyed it greatly. <laughs> uh, they, 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 they thought it was hilarious. So the second follow-up is, is there any way Duke can ever get the upper hand again after UNC beat Coach K at Duke in his last home game and then beat them again in the Final Four? Is that untoppable, basically? No, there's, there's nothing you could ever do. There's, there's literally nothing that could ever be done to be there. If I were Carolina, I wouldn't have even played that game in the national semifinal just to ensure that Krzyzewski went out with that L. And then they went and got, I mean, the fact that they lost that game at Cameron and they still did the ceremony and they made Duke's players just sit over there looking miserable. And he was trashing them. And he trashed him. Like, like I would have, I would have made that moment live on forever, but no, they played it again. And then shockingly, they won that one too. No, 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 no. I just can't imagine anything worse in a rivalry that is as 24-7, 365 as that one. No, 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 no. They, they own that one forever. When we come back, Bomani Jones talks about his first encounters with people from outside the South and how they didn't turn out like he had hoped. 
I didn't I didn't realize like the ways that people from outside the South truly viewed us. And that made me actually very kind of angry and resentful about a lot of that. And I found myself then from there, not not really saying like I leaned in on the idea of being Southern, but it gave me an understanding of what was different about where I grew up. That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Bamani Jones. I think your show and, and everything you've done in one way or another kind of pushes people toward those uncomfortable places. Has that always been sort of natural for you? Is it easy for you to be in those uncomfortable spots? Are you comfortable kind of being uncomfortable, I guess? I've never been uncomfortable in the spaces. Like, it's just kind of what it is. But part of it for me was that I got into this business without jobs that provided access. Like I was, I got into this doing big picture stuff and then was able to then get the access to do, you know, things more on the ground and more traditionally journalistic um, over the course of time. I did, I had to do that and then had to figure out what I could provide that was useful. I think the question that people typically have is whether or not the audience is comfortable being there. And the truth is the audience is comfortable being there. You just got to make them comfortable. Because the truth is not even people like me got into this because they were like, wow, what a conduit to talk about these larger issues. No, they got into it because they really enjoy sports, because they really love sports. And so for me, it was figuring out how to make sure that that first part was there. And then once you come into it as a person who starts from a position of love, people are willing to listen to you. If they feel like you're coming in simply from a position of judgment, then you're not going to be able to pull it off. I'm wondering if how much of that came from your upbringing or childhood or anything like that. I know your mom and dad were both professors. Your mom had done sit-ins in Oklahoma City. You know, both your parents were very strong in the academy and that sort of thing. Did y'all have a lot of like deep conversations when you were growing up and were any of them ever about sports? Oh yeah, no, a lot of it was about sports and they were definitely there. And so the thing for me is that my siblings are much older than me. Like I'm 10 years younger than my youngest sibling and so they were out of the house by the time I you know I was with my parents and my parents were older and I grew up in one of those situations where I lived 20 something miles away from where I went to school so like my hangout time was really largely spent with my parents so like the level of conversation that I was accustomed to hearing and even to a degree participating in was the level of conversation that they were on that they participated in and they always answered questions about those sorts of things to me, like in a way they thought I could comprehend, which gave me a bit more rope or probably I got more exposure than the average child was going to get just because they thought I could handle what that level of exposure was. 
I'm wondering where the if there was a moment you remember that was sort of a turn for you from just like, you know, I like this team or I like this player or whatever to seeing some deeper meaning behind the game. That's a good question. I think like I don't know if there was ever like an inflection point about that thing. Um I do know one point that I do remember having, and I can't, I think this must have been in the year 2000, was the first time that I read Friday Night Lights. And I can make the argument that there hasn't been a better, like, sociological study of sport than the book Friday Night Lights since it came out. Right. It explained so much to me about why people were into this in the first place and like the role that identity plays in sports and how this starts at that level. But then it can be explained by everything else is that how people ascribe so much of their worth into those games. And I do remember for me that that was a really big eureka moment in understanding just how it was that sports touch people and in a way that definitely informed what my career became. I've been thinking a lot about that idea of sports as identity you know we were talking a little bit before we actually started the podcast i'm wearing my georgia hat today i grew up in georgia we won two national championships now in a row but it was just the luck of geography i happen to grow up there you know if i'd been born in indiana i'd never see a football national championship i might want in basketball maybe but not in football um and it seems like we grab onto these things that in some ways are just like a roll of the dice or a crapshoot, and that becomes who we are, um, especially through sports. And I'm, I, just, I wonder if there's some way to, if there's a way to break out of that or if that makes sense. I'm, have you thought about that sort of thing much? Well, I feel like it's been happening for so long that breaking out of it is kind of impossible because that's not what people want. You know, like I think about what it means for a city to get a major league franchise no matter what the sport is what it means so i went to portland oregon for the first time a couple of summers ago the only reason that we have ever heard of portland oregon if we are not from oregon is because they got that basketball team that is the only one like it gives us it it gave the idea of portland like a large yes because they have a basketball team right like like it's got to be a place if it's got a basketball team and then you go look at population stats and you go to the place and you're like, hey, I mean, not to say there's anything wrong with Portland, but this ain't Paris, right? This isn't New York <laughs> City, right? Like what you imagine in your head is not going to be what you get there, but it is legitimized by the presence of having this team. Um, Oklahoma City, we saw the same thing and it was just so important to them to have the team because the ability to sustain it, what it reflected to the rest of the country. And I think as it, mat as it relates to identity, people do care what the people around them think about the place that they are from. They're very, very defensive of home. Sports give people a way to say, this is a good thing about our home. Now, of course, there are certainly better things that you should be able to say about your home, but how many of them are going to be relatable? Like, you're going to tell this average person on the street, well, let me tell you, our per capita income just keeps on going up. Just watch <laughs> out for us. Yeah, that other person you're talking to doesn't really care about that, but you tell them that our team won a championship, they know that. I've also thought about, you know, this whole podcast in a way is about the identity of growing up Southern. You lived in Atlanta and Houston and, and North Carolina. You lived in Miami, which I'm not sure really counts, but it's a, it's a, its own world. Now, New York... When you're back in the South, 
does it feel like home to you? Does it feel better than other places you've been there or is it worse? No, no, it, it just feels so much more natural. Like Atlanta in particular. I grew up, I was born in Atlanta. We lived there for seven years and then we moved to Houston. We lived there for 10 years. And then I did the next four years in Atlanta um, for college. I don't think I really readily identified as like truly being Southern until I got to Atlanta for college. Cause one, Texas is in that kind of weird um, in between space. Like I'd argue Houston is Southern Dallas is not right. San Antonio and Austin are not, but like Southeast Texas, I definitely think of as being Southern. And, but I didn't, I don't know if I wore that necessarily with a measure of pride at that point. Cause like all the music I listened to was really out of New York or from other places, not, you know, specifically where I was. And then I got to college and I was at Clark Atlanta, which has a really a transcontinental um, student body. Like people were coming there from everywhere. And it was the first time I'd been around people from New York. And I was actually kind of looking forward to it. Cause again, like the music and stuff I was into was coming from that direction. And I got there and I just had no idea how scornful they were toward us and the way that they looked down on us and the assumption of people based on accents and everything like that. And I didn't like I have a bit of a Southern accent now, but even then it was probably far more neutral. Um, so I didn't like I was a sleeper cell of sorts, I guess. But I didn't I didn't realize like the ways that people from outside the South truly viewed us. And that made me actually very kind of angry and resentful about a lot of that. And I found myself then from there. Not not really saying like I leaned in on the idea of being Southern, but it gave me an understanding of what was different about where I grew up versus where they grew up. And it gave me a probably keener eye to what the cultural differences were that existed for those of us versus for these other people. Because I thought about it like my mom's from Oklahoma, but they moved there from Texas. My dad is from uh, North Louisiana. And so I think about like all those places and where I grew up for a number of reasons very well versed on small town south right very very well versed in that in those places you drop me there i know exactly how to move i know exactly how to go and i didn't realize how immersed i probably was in that until i got around these folks from other places then i started going to some of these other places and really realizing no i am not i am from a somewhat particular part of this country in a very particular part of this world and it really does define and inform a lot of the ways that I look at the world, a lot of the ways that I see things, ways I see race and honestly, ways I see race that are probably more positive than people would realize. Because one thing about having a small town southern background is you've probably interacted more of somebody of another race than anybody from one of these suburbs in these other places, because if you go to a school where you get there based upon what county you live in or what little town you're in, they ain't room for two of those no more. They made laws about that. You know, like you're, you're going to meet those people that honestly, like the well-to-do white people in these other places were moving away from the same way they was moving away from us. Right. Like, so I feel like I being Southern, if you do it right, gives you, I believe, a cultural dexterity that you don't get in other places because class lines in the South in particular are just far more blurry. I want to take one quick detour among the things that, that I read about, you know, when I see you on Twitter and that sort of thing, I, I love seeing you astonish so many, I, I assume 40 ish white guys by your knowledge of like classic rock. Yes. Like, you know, far more than I do about like David Bowie's catalog, Pink Floyd, all that sort of thing. How did you come to love, uh, really wide breadth of music 
where did that come from? And kind of what stuff are you listening to these days? Yeah, it's a, it, I think it's a couple of things. One of those is kind of growing up um, as a child of hip hop. You start with the song and then you wind up like going back to the sample. Right. And that takes you in a place. I also had these older siblings. So, you know, if you grew up in a particular time where you basically in your town may have had like two stations, the black station and the top 40 station. And, you know, and so I think there are a lot of black people that are more familiar with what was on the top 40 station than people realize. Or like if you're black and grew up in the 80s and you're watching MTV, there's only one MTV. You're getting what's being put out there and that'll get you to a range of stuff and a range of stuff at a time where like you listen to an NXS album and you realize, hey, man, this sounds a lot like James Brown. Like, you know, they're, they're branches off of the same tree. And so when I decided my senior year in college that I wanted to start writing about music, this is also when Napster first hit the streets. I realized very quickly, though, that if I was going to do this, I needed to be able to do a bunch of genres and make comparisons across genres. This was also happening at the same time where um, the baby boomer generation, and I know that people talk about them in this way with scorn, but they did a great job in canonizing their youth and their experience. And so you'd have a lot of television shows like VH1, the top 100 albums in rock and like Rolling Stone does all those lists and everything. And I would go study those lists and then go listen to the stuff because apparently this is what I needed to know in order to do my job. Like these are the classics in this, in this world. And so once you're there, you're like, huh, this is pretty interesting. And, you know, since, you know, the music was being stolen, it was very easy to go and get more. I was like, oh, okay, I'll find another one. Oh, okay, I'll check this out. And then it just, because of the ease of the internet, it just became so easy to go through and find the other stuff and figure out what the influences were. And all of this happened at a time where personally I was not in the greatest place. Um, my best friend in undergrad died my April of my junior year um, in like a, similar situation to Mar Hamlin, just not a football field, but like one of those, you know, cardiac episodes that we didn't know, had no idea would be coming. Oh, man. And I just kind of hold myself up with, you know, this new advent called high speed internet. And I studied it, you know, and then when I found what I liked along the way, um, I stuck along with it. And I think part of what made that journey fun for me and part of what made it like become so surprising to those other people is, they assume that I am as closed-minded as they are, right? Like, and I'm like, yo, don't you understand? Like, I've been around all of you, like the, the broad you. Like, I've been around all of it. And sometimes you did, you hear a song that you like, but my identity is not defined by what I listen to. Like, it's not a betrayal of anything to go check out something else. Like, I admit, it took me a long time to get around the country and I only got into like three people once I got there. But if it goes, it goes. One last thing, I'll let you go. And, and, Cut me off if I'm if I'm getting this, if I'm thinking about this in the wrong way. But I, when I think about you, I think of son of professors. I know you did a lot of grad school work and that sort of thing. I wonder if you see yourself as a professor of sorts, doing what you do, uh, at least as a teacher. And if so, what do you think the core lesson you're trying to get across might be? Like, it's one of those things that I try to be careful about because it feels somewhat self-indulgent to say, but I recognized a long time ago what my role typically is in the ecosystems in which I participate. And people, for as long as I have remembered, have looked to me for context and explanation. 
like part of I'm very careful about the tone that I use when I talk about things and people on air because I realize if people have a certain measure of respect for you, it means something different when you're harsh about them. Um, it lands differently when you're harsh about them. And that I think is in line also with the idea of like being the professor or being at the front of the room. Um, I know that when important things happen in sports and outside of sports, people are coming to me to get some insight about what to think about when it comes to those things. Um, the podcast I do for ESPN, The Right Time, after COVID hit, all the numbers went down across the board in our world of sports podcasting because there were no sports. Except for our podcast, the numbers went up because even in the absence of sports, they're like, hey, this COVID thing is happening. I want to hear what Bomani has to say about this. Give me something to think about when it's there. And yeah, that's that's where I am. That's what I do for the world or the community that I have built. Um, and I like to think of it, I would probably like to think of it more as professor than teacher because the professor is more of an interaction than a dictation. Like, I'm not here to make sure that you learned everything from page 25 to 40 in that book. You have read pages 25 to 40, and now I'm giving you some context to exercise your brain and, th you know, and to think about these things. I was very disappointed when I did not finish that PhD program, but I really didn't want to finish a PhD program. I realized I didn't want to be a researcher. I didn't want to do those things. If there was something I wanted to do, I wanted to be in the front of the room and work with the class. And I realized that's kind of what I do now. Like uh, when ESPN let me go um, in 2007, I was talking to Scoop Jackson about it and about, you know, not writing. And it was, you know, it was a blow to my ego. And he said, hey, you're going to be a writer wherever you go. And, you know, he's like, David Simon isn't writing for the Baltimore Sun anymore. He writes television shows. He's still a writer and he's still doing what needs to be done. That stuck with me. And I think I really, not so much about the writer part, but it stuck with me about the PhD part, that whatever it was that I wanted to do there, I could still do this here. And I just hope that when I do it in the spaces that I'm in, that I don't appear to be pretentious or judgmental to people. But I really do think there's some things that I can help us all understand better. And I just I like I try to lean in on that without trying to make everybody feel like I'm doing it because I think I'm smarter than them. I guess you can watch sports as pure entertainment, the way you might watch a sitcom or a TikTok video. But if you think about sports much at all, pretty soon you start to see layers of meaning underneath the games. And after a while, you can't help but see what the writer Wright Thompson calls the cost of these dreams. Nobody thinks about these things harder or better than Bamani Jones. When he talks about sports, you don't just learn about the NFL or the NBA. You learn about race and class, nepotism and greed, identity and humanity. It's hard for me to explain sometimes why sports matter so much. I mean, I'm definitely happy when my team wins, but the lasting feelings I get from sports have little to do with the scoreboard. It's about the people involved, playing a game that stands for life in some way, while figuring out their own lives along the way. It's one way I make sense of the world. I don't know if I explained that very well. If you really want to understand, listen to Bamani Jones. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. 
Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.